just like John, there is at least a little bit of facetiousness in this introduction. And I'm going to have a challenge. I'm going to have to turn around because I don't have a prompter here to let me know that things are going right. I guess I soon enough will. Meanwhile, what is the aim of today's exercise? Everybody, to focus by and on the only light there is. And why? What's our reason? Because it's time to face reality and because I really didn't think enough about it when I sang the spiritual. Which spiritual? Walk in Jerusalem just like John. I, I've been thinking about it now and thinking, you know, we, we have a problem here. But let's read our scripture reading together. Everybody, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun. Why? Because the Lord God shall illumine them and they shall reign forever and ever. No need for lanterns, no need for moon or sun because the Lord God shall give us light. What's our seven word summary today? Everybody, <laughs> my city does not need crystal triangles. Come on, say that together, because it's true. My <laughs> does not need crystal triangles. I confess to you that there is at least a little facetiousness in today's introduction. Truly, I don't know if there ever isn't facetiousness in anything Lael Caesar says. One conscientious listener from yesterday said, you know, we have a saying in Germany that, you know, you... You think around corners. So I, and uh, I told him, actually, I have spent my life confusing people. And <laughs> my wife has spent our married life together begging me not to confuse. <laughs> but I, I, I'm probably naturally confused and have not been converted enough from confusion. So bear with me and uh, let's say that together again, everybody. My city does not need crystal triangles. Oh, wonderful God, our light and our life and our love. Thank you that with you, we have no lack. And because of you, we need no candles. Thank you for being our light. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't sing anymore, but I used to sing. 
male quartets and stuff like that. And me and the King's Heralds and all the other guys that Wayne Hooper and HMS Riches and the Voice of Prophecy taught to sing male quartet music. And of course, just like John, I Want to Be Ready was probably still is one of the hits. I, I want to walk in Jerusalem just like, you know, I've been thinking about it. What, what is that all about? Does anybody have any idea why we all sing about walking in Jerusalem just like John? Was it, is it because everybody wants to go to Israel? I mean, if it had been Moses, or I want to walk in Jerusalem just like Enoch, or, or just like Elijah. You understand? That, that, but John? Which Jerusalem are they talking about? Jews all over the world are always talking about going to Jerusalem. Every year they conclude their Passover feast by saying, next year in Jerusalem. It used to be because they lived with an unfulfilled longing. They couldn't access the city. And so every Passover ends next year in Jerusalem. But that's not true anymore. There are 600,000 Jews living in Jerusalem now and 5.3 million others who have direct access anytime they want to who live in the Israeli Republic. And of course, millions of others around the world who can go whenever they want to the Aliyah and, you know, just, just go up. But they still say, next year in Jerusalem. John Bloom, who was president of the blog Desiring God, believes that next year in Jerusalem actually expresses a spiritual longing for the promised peaceful messianic Jerusalem, a profound wish that the next year be a happy one. Do you live with longing to, for a Jerusalem where everything will be happy? Do you long for a better city than the one that you live in, if you do live in a city? Or a better place than the one you live in, even if you don't live in a city? Maybe you could move to New York, because New York is the greatest city in the world. That, at, at least that's what the announcer says every night on CBS when he introduces Dave Letterman from New York. The greatest city in the And New York has a lot to recommend it. Especially crystal triangles. Did you know that? You? No? You, you didn't know that New York was famous for crystal triangles? Well, let me educate you. You may not know about New York's crystal triangles, but you know about Times Square. You do, huh? And you know that every year on the 31st of December, a million people scrunch themselves into this one place at the junction of Broadway and 7th Avenue in central Manhattan to see the ball. And one billion people all over the world spend their December 31 watching the one million people in Times Square and fantasizing about being there in person. 
The ball that these people are looking at is a bunch of crystal triangles. 32,256 energy efficient lights reflected to the two billion eyes watching the ball by 2,688 glittering Waterford crystal triangles. And since this staring at crystal triangles has no equivalent annual spectacle anywhere in the world, crystal triangles must be a grand and very important thing. But my city does not need crystal triangles. The city that Jesus has for me does not need crystal triangles to give and reflect light. And it doesn't need 32,256 energy efficient lights to be reflected by its Wallaford crystal triangles. My city marks the ultimate contrast between all that is fake and contrived and artificial that finds its unparalleled climax in the heady intoxication of rocking New Year's Eve in Times Square in New York City under a ball of glittering Waterford crystal triangles. Jesus is in my city, and Jesus is the light of the world. Meaning what? What does John 8, 12 mean? And Jesus, when he says it, I am the light of the world. What does that mean? In context of our key word this week, one, I'd like you to notice that Jesus does not say, I am one of the most crucial, significant, important, essential, whatever, shali wali, he does not say the most anything. He says, I am the light. As C.S. Lewis, in mere Christianity, puts it, and I want you to read with me, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus, they say, as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept his claim to be God. They want him to be on par with the Buddha. And so Jesus can give you some moral insight and the Buddha can give you the enlightenment or you can experience it. Keep going. That is the one thing we must not say. Can you read that? Uh, is everybody seeing it up there? Oh, good. Okay. That is the one thing you must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said Thank you. would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with the man who says, I am a poached egg. Or else, he would be the devil from hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He is the light of the world. You fall at his feet or you call him a devil from hell. The world has had its great teachers. Men of giant intellect and extensive research. Men whose utterances have stimulated thought and opened to view vast fields of knowledge. And these men have been honored as guides and benefactors of their race. But there is one who stands higher than they. We trace the line of the world's teachers as far back as human records extend. But the light was before them. As the moon and the stars of our solar system shine by the reflected light of the sun, so, as far as their teaching is true, do the world's great thinkers reflect the rays of the sun of righteousness. Every gleam of thought, every flash of the intellect is from the light of the world. If Jesus doesn't shine it, there is no light, and all you brilliant physicists out there, this light does not bend. It is not subject to any gravitational pull. It just goes all the way through all the gravitational entities to the core of all being. John 8.12, do you know when John 8.12 is articulated? John doesn't begin with chapter 8, verse 12. He begins with chapter 1. And in chapter 1, he says, Jesus is the light that lights every person who comes into the world. He is the light of life and the light of judgment. And John 8 does not begin with chapter 12. There is verse 11 and verse 10 and verse 9 and verse 8 before that. What are all those verses about? They are about the woman groveling in shame behind him because he has turned his face to the ground to help save her dignity and he's looking on the ground because he's writing there and people want to see what he's writing they come over and look it is dark in the world and he is shedding light and it goes in all directions before he came as ellen white put it desire of ages 22 the earth was dark the earth was dark through misapprehension of god so god's character had to be manifested in contrast to the character of Satan. This work, only one being in all the universe could do. Only he who knew the height and depth of the love of God could make it known. Upon the world's dark night, the sun of righteousness must rise with healing in his wings. The plan of salvation, the plan for our redemption was not an afterthought. A plan formulated after the fall of Adam. It was a revelation of the mystery which hath been kept in silence through times eternal. You know the text, for God, say it with me, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever 
believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's how he brought the light that illuminated the character of his father. That's how he got us, our city that doesn't need crystal triangles. Blessed are those who have washed their robes. It gives them right to enter through the gates into the city, to march right in. But it wasn't easy. He didn't just flick a switch and say, here is your city. The plan of redemption was a plan formulated after the fall of Adam. It was something to restore us from the fall. And it cost. Heaven's golden streets come at a price. Surely our griefs he bore. And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. I'm not sure we will ever get over this or that it will ever really register with us. As it is possible, maybe after a millennium of eternities, it will. But the enemy has a strategy that keeps waylaying us even after we have come to believe this. So we're going to work with it today. He bore our griefs, but we thought something was wrong with him. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Second Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Golden streets come at a staggering price. Golden streets do not come free. Golden streets come in an exchange. We get what he gave up because it was his best chance. This was the light. And if he could smother the light, if he could put out the light, he would reign over the darkness forever and ever and ever. He miscalculated in heaven in his original rebellion. But now Jesus was an actual creature, lower than the angels, lower than him, because the angels all know that he was the greatest of the angels and God had given them a raw deal by giving Jesus preeminence over him. But he could get his revenge now. He could fix it now. He could beat Jesus down once and for all. The fight with the man the Holy Spirit anointed at the Jordan River was real to Satan. Regardless of the theology that suggests that it wasn't real. Satan schemed and strategized and plotted and planned 
For three years, the child the virgin delivered, the author of life, Herod, tried to kill the Galilean carpenter who created everything, walked about hugging despised lepers and mother's babies, eating Martha's food and sleeping in Peter's house and under the open sky, sitting down on Samaritan wells and helping lifelong cripples and bent over bleeding women stand up straight and walk and leap and dance besides. For three and a half years, he kept waking up dead men and young girls and silencing screams from ocean waves and demon-possessed men. For three and a half years, he got up early to talk with his father, spent whole nights communing with his father, and whole days inviting everybody to come into the kingdom of heaven. For three and a half years, he spread light everywhere he went, dispelling the gloom and fear and re constructing for those who had had a distorted view of it, redesigning, illuminating, showing them the character of his father, blowing away the walls the devil had erected, shedding light on the darkness of superstition, the evil fog of suspicion about his father. Satan hounded his steps twisted his words, mocked his claims, smeared his character, and tried to preserve the shadows in people's minds and darken Jesus' own with doubt. If you are God's son, do this, do that. Or maybe with rage, these guys who are always sitting in the front row, get mad and lash out at some one of them in anger. They're always hounding your steps. Or maybe cowardice. Go and hide. Herod wants to kill you. Protect yourself from your enemies. He had to find something. Because if Christ could be overcome, the earth would become Satan's kingdom and the human race would be forever in his power. This week was his last chance. The prophecies told him so. This was the year according to Daniel 9. And this was the time of the year according to the religious calendar God had made the nation observe for 1500 years. It was now or never and he was ready. What was his strategy? He had come for the last fearful struggle. What was his strategy? Tempting Jesus to surf the web for pornographic material. Tempting him to... Be lazy, idle, tempting him to eat something or drink something that violated the best health rules. Tempting him to what? What did Satan try? To bring Jesus down. I have it written down here. You want to hear it. What was his master stroke? Was it some joker's card from our pack of proofs of fundamental human insecurity and inferiority that Satan carries around with him. Competition to make impressions. To put on a better show. That's what we talked about yesterday. What was Satan's masterstroke? I'll tell you. Desire of ages. 6, 8, 6 and 7. Satan told him that if he became the surety for a sinful world, the separation from his father would be, would be, eternal. would be eternal. eternal. Why? If he decided to die for those people. What was to be gained by his sacrifice? 
the people who claim above all others in temporal, spiritual, and advantages, people who claim to be above all others, are seeking to destroy you. One of your own disciples who has listened to your instruction and has been among the foremost in church activities will betray you. One of your most zealous followers will deny you. All will forsake you. You're going to die for Lael Caesar? Are you kidding me? Oh, you're going to die for those nice people? Lael Caesar is an ungrateful wretch, and the nice people are really, really nice. I'm, I'm serious. They are beautiful to be around all the time, by day and even by night. In the darkness of the path from the chapel to the lifestyle center, when you can't see anything, they are good people. They're not like everybody else. They really are not sinners, swindlers, unjust adulterers, or tax gatherers. They fast twice a week and tithe every tenth week germ in their granola. They do good stuff, Jesus. Really, really good stuff. I read this astonishing paragraph from an Ellen White article in the Review and Herald, April 9, 1889, entitled, Go Work Today in My Vineyard. And she says this, It is not representing Christ to present your own elements of character to the world. You must not congratulate yourself on the characteristics for which you have had no battle, no conflict. There are many who are naturally benevolent and they give freely and without effort. But let them not deceive themselves that this benevolence will save them. We must put on Christ. It may not be new, but it's still striking, isn't it? Now, there's nothing wrong with graciousness. But being gracious is not being saved. So I may be good because I am, well, good. My mother and my older sister have always insisted they have drilled this into my ear because I've often heard them say it and into the ears of a lot of other innocent people. Lael was a good baby. I was a perfect baby. So I am good. What's the difference between that kind of reasoning? And Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, tax gatherers. I fast twice a week. I may not tithe wheat germ, but I do pay tithe for every tenth time leaf. Is that what Satan said to Jesus about me? Let me tell you something, poor dear brother Jesus. The people who are killing you, they are people who think they know the truth. They despise criminals because they are saints. They are against murder and theft and they avoid association with bad people, except when they are ministering to them. They have very little to do with pedophiles and homosexuals. You, you, you're still going to die for them? Satan's master stroke. Why is that Satan's masterstroke? Why did he reserve that argument for Jesus when he came for the last fearful struggle? And what could that conceivably have to do with God's people 
in this precious place on this beautiful day. You know Mark Anthony's speech about Julius Caesar, ingratitude. More strong than traitor's arms quite vanquished him. Then burst his mighty heart. And in his mantle muffling up his face, in at the base of Pompey's statue, great Caesar fell. Ingratitude, Jesus, ingratitude. How much do they understand what you went through? You know what? Satan gets things wrong a lot of the time, but this time he got it right about Leal Caesar. But getting it right, of course, is what turns it upside down. He usually gets it wrong, but this time he is right because Leal Caesar is no saint, he is unrighteous, he is no good, and he is ungrateful. But God commends his love toward me in that though I am an ungrateful wretch, Christ died. For me. He still paid the price. I cannot let Jesus die in vain. Jesus has something better for me. Something better than New York's crystal triangle glitter. And by his grace I shall have it. Not by making myself good enough. But because the goodness of his love leaves me no choice. Controls me. Wins me over. We don't work for him because we are good or because we are better. We work for him because his love overwhelms us into fetching crosses for him, into making any sacrifice for him. Councils for the Church, page 49. There is need of constant watchfulness and of earnest, loving devotion. But these will come naturally when the soul is kept by the power of God through faith. We can do nothing, absolutely nothing, to commend ourselves to divine favor. We must not trust at all to ourselves or our good works. You see, Satan has a strategy, my sister and my brother, and it's an unrelenting strategy that doesn't leave anybody out. If he can keep you from coming to Jesus because you're fine, then he's happy. But if he can't keep you from coming to Jesus, then okay, go to Jesus, and then you're fine. And you can be comfortable in knowing that you were saved, and you can fall asleep in the assurance that you were saved. But if he can't keep you still because you've come to Jesus and you have got to tell the world who Jesus is and you have got to help every single soul know who Jesus is. You've got to help them even if they aren't interested in knowing who Jesus is. You still have to minister to their needs. Then he has another strategy. Flood you. With affirmations about your virtue and your betterness. Because that is what got him. The pride that is the precursor of all destruction. And the agent in the story of the universe's most catastrophic fall. The meek. Will he guide in judgment? The meek 
Will he teach his way? God bless and keep you. When as erring sinful beings we come to Christ, we may find rest in his love. God will accept everyone that comes to him trusting. Trusting, what's the next word? Trusting. Holy. In the merits of a crucified Savior. There's nothing else to trust. There is nothing else to trust in. This is the one song. This is the one refrain. This is the one interest that will echo and reverberate and predominate. Christ, our righteousness. Christ, our righteousness. Love springs up in the heart. There may be no ecstasy of feeling, but there is an abiding, peaceful trust. Every burden is light, for the yoke which Christ imposes is easy. Duty becomes a delight and sacrifice a pleasure. The path that before seemed shrouded in darkness becomes bright. That's our theme, with beams from the sun of righteousness. Why? Because he is my light and my salvation. You got that? When we find rest in his love, love springs up and work is joy. You remember delightfulness? The beauty of the Lord? Well, when his love really gets working, working for him becomes delight. And sacrifice becomes pleasure. And the world says they are masochistic. Do you see what they go through? Something is wrong with them psycho-emotionally. Because the world does not understand what it is to love Jesus. And what it is to be grateful for Jesus' love. Duty becomes a delight. And sacrifice a pleasure. The world doesn't understand that by carrying his cross. Up that skull shaped hill. He carried my curse. And set me free from myself. He carried a cross before me to give me access to my bright city. And I don't need the heady excitement of Times Square on New York's New Year's Eve in order to find a thrill. I've got work for Jesus. God didn't stop the horror that convulsed his son, although he interrupted the Flames for Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. There was no miracle forthcoming to deliver Jesus, although he did so many miracles for so many people. Because if he had performed the miracle at that point to come down, he would have taken down the light. He was hanging up there so that the light could go to the world and cast its beams across the universe so every human and angel and every other unfallen being could see the light. And so he could light the way to my city. There's one thing more. Three points. Heaven's golden streets come at a price. 
I cannot let Jesus die in vain. And today is my day to be ready. We make our plans as though we will be here for a thousand years. But we live every day as though it is our last. Once again, Review and Herald. April 9, 1889. How do you stand before God today? The question is not, how will you stand in the day of trouble? In that day of trouble, when all souls are terrified, And all faces gather blackness. You will trust in Jesus. But do you trust him wholly today when the sun is shining? Do you trust him wholly when there is progress in your enterprise? Do you trust him completely when the prospects are bright? Or do we understand that the prospects are as bright as the light of the promises of God? We want a personal, individual experience today. Today, we want Christ abiding with us. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man has been lifted up that we might look and live. There is but one plan of salvation. There is but one process by which the soul may be healed of its wounds. Look to the man of Calvary. Look to him who alone is the light. Not to Dr. Steve or Elder Ted or Mark Finley, but to Jesus and Jesus alone, hardworking fellow Christian. Let's sing the song together. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely. In the light of his glory and grace. The path that before seemed shrouded in darkness becomes bright with beams from the sun of righteousness. And we don't need crystal triangles to see our way. We surely won't need them when heaven comes down and we don't even need them down here because he, Jesus, is the light of the world. And when heaven does come down, he will be the light of the city and you and I will be able to walk in the light of the city with John because even if he hasn't walked there yet, he will. I want to be ready. I want to be ready. I want to be ready to walk 
in Jerusalem with John. My city does not need crystal triangles. I think we should pray together. I think we should turn once more to the one beside us or someone close by and share a word of prayer that in all our doing, in our going out and our coming in, in our planning and strategizing and our scheming and applying, we will not for one moment forget who we are and who Jesus is and trust wholly to his merits. Come acknowledging what he did for us so that gratitude will make working for him not a drudgery but a delight and sacrifice for him will be a pleasure. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.